So if you had to define, if you had to explain to somebody what authentic worship is, how would you do it? <clears throat> how would you define, how would you explain to someone what real, that, that worship that kind of transforms us? Would it be, would it be music or would it be uh, preaching or would it be uh, tears? Would it be just kind of this general feeling of excitement? Is that, what, is that what great worship is? In other words, when you think of good, strong worship, you know, in today's market, it tends to be more subjective. It tends to be more rooted in how I feel. Do I feel good? Do I feel like God's presence was there? Now, I don't want to deny the role of subjective feelings in worship. I want us to have great affections for God. I mean, I, I want your affections for God to increase. But I think there are some objective elements in worship that are often missed that are fundamental to good, strong worship, some objective things to consider. So when you think about the question, what is authentic worship? What is worship that really changes us from glory to glory? I, I want you to be thinking about some of these other more concrete. It, it doesn't get the press that maybe the music does, or maybe the feelings that you have do. Uh, but if you turn with me to Romans chapter 15, we'll read 7 through 13. I'll pick up verse 7 again from last week. And um, I think Paul, you know, we're kind of moving through this. How do we love God's people? We talked about that last week. How do we love God's glory? How do we worship rightly? And we'll talk about that this week, and then next week will be God's world. And Steve um, <clears throat> will be joining me for that. So Romans fifteen seven. let's read it together. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it's written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So he's talking about worship here, and I just want to draw a couple, a couple um, objective truths of worship. And the first thing I'll be speaking about is that authentic worship flows or is, is, uh, flows out of a, a gospel-centered community. So if we're not a gospel-centered community, I think worship will be challenged. Even though you may feel great initially, I think it'll be long-term, it'll be challenged. So you need to be in a, a gospel-centered community for worship to flow. L let, me, let me make this point to you. So remember last week, we talked about this idea of, um, in verses 5 and 6, Paul had prayed, he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement, he says, grant you to be of one accord in Christ, so that with one voice you might glorify God. So, so Paul was praying that we would glorify God with one voice, is what he was praying. He was praying that we would be united as a church around the gospel, so that we might glorify God. Now, the reason he did that was because they were being challenged, if you remember, the weak and the strong. There was pride and there was contempt beginning to bleed into the church 
over the differences between the weak and the strong, those who have Christian liberties and those who didn't feel the same freedom to walk in certain lifestyles that others did. And so this, this division and separation was beginning to bleed into the church, and so Paul is, of course, praying for that. And, and, uh, and if you remember, the strong were those who, again, had the freedom, but the weak were those who didn't understand the full import of God's grace. And, and the weak were those who maybe were a little more legalistic. And the tension was beginning to rise, and here's why. The weak were building a unity around secondary considerations. They were building a unity around maybe how we dress or how we thought about this issue or how we think about this secondary condition. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. If you don't hub around the gospel, then you're going to have division and separation. And, and, and let me say that it's more than just distracting to worship. For us to worship authentically, and some divisions begin to creep in. We don't hub around the gospel. It's more than distracting. It's damaging to worship. It's really damaging. I think you know this. When you're in conflict, or if Carol and I are in a conflict, it's very hard for me to be preparing anything in terms of a teaching, in terms of a sermon. It's hard for me to think straight on God when my life with my wife is out of sync. But you know the same thing. It's in your marriages, perhaps in your family. You have an explosive situation on the way to church. You have some battle with a family member. Perhaps you have some unreconciled conflict with someone in this church. It negatively affects our ability to truly worship. We feel hypocritical. We feel distant from God. We come in here and we sing these songs and we're convicted immediately. And so it works against our worship experience. And that's why I think Paul is calling for this Unity around the gospel so that our worship will be authentic and rich. And you see this, of course, in verse 7 when he says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. In other words, that's his call. Now, you see in verse 7 this therefore, and of course you know why it's there. It's what precedes therefore. You, know, you want to ask, what's it there for? Well, it's there for, to speak to 5 and 6. 5 and 6 are calling for a united worship. And so Paul's saying, hey, if you want a united worship, welcome one another. Notice he doesn't use strong and weak in our passage. Why? Because he's speaking to the whole church. He's speaking to each one of us to extend grace and mercy to each other. But when you see that word welcome, as I explained last week, it has the idea of, of receiving or drawing someone close. The word is used in the New Testament often to describe a, a meal. You know, you have conversations around meal, they tend to be more meaningful. They tend to allow a greater depth of conversation, not the superficial stuff that you say to each other as you pass by one another in the hallway. When he's saying welcome one another, he's saying make room in your life for those people who are different than you. He's speaking about count them as part of our group, even though you may differ with them in terms of, of some points of their theology, secondary points of theology. Perhaps you differ with their use of liberties. Perhaps they just have different beliefs than you on certain things. Now, of course, I'm not saying we, we ignore sin and we don't offer admonishment and rebuke when the case may be and, and the case calls for it, but, but it's, it's calling us to welcome, to receive, to, to make room in our lives for other people who we're not naturally drawn to. Now, Paul is, is encouraging us to do this because it's part of authentic worship. And he encourages us to do it based upon the gospel. Notice he says, 
to um, welcome one another as Christ has received you. So I want you to understand that you and I have been welcomed by Christ. So when Christ took on flesh and lived his life and bore our sin on the cross, died, rose again, he received us, even though we were far away, sinners, broken. That, that he didn't ask us to come part way. He didn't ask us to, to kind of, we're going to hit a medium point that we're going to meet together. No, he moved towards us. He received us fully. And so Paul is arguing, that's what he's doing here with this comparative expression, as Christ received you, he's arguing to think back on how you were received and that in same manner are you to receive others. Paul's really using Jesus here as a model. You know, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus is saying, use my life as an example. As an example, he's more than an example, of course, but he is an example for us. To use my life as an example to receive one another. That we can exercise forbearance. We can extend mutual concern to other people because he has done that for us. Do you get that? I mean, do you truly understand how far away and separate you were from Christ? When he received you, do you you really understand that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then, and then I want you to emphasize that while we were sinners, what does that mean? That doesn't mean I was a better sinner than this sinner. In other words, you can always look around horizontally and find someone worse than you. I have no doubt about that. And so if you just look around horizontally, you can think, well, he did save me and I did need to be saved, but you know what, that guy really needs to be saved. But, but that, that's not the case. We're not to look around horizontally, but, but we were sinners before God. So God's the standard by which we measure ourselves, not one another. And so when we, it says welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, I mean, that's what we're to go to. Now, listen, I'm not calling for us to just be a cheery, peaceable group, and out of that's going to flow worship. That's not what I'm saying. You can see, he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. What? For the glory of God. There's an end state here. You and I are not to have nice relationships just because it makes for a pleasant church experience. But we're to have great relationships because it brings glory to God. Jesus brought glory to the Father by receiving sinners to himself and reconciling them to him. And so you and I, actually, it's a worship experience. The ultimate goal of your friendships Get this, the ultimate goal in you intersecting one another in this church is an act of worship to God. It is for his glory. That's the ultimate goal. It isn't even to have friends. I mean, that's wonderful and beautiful as it is, but it is for the purpose of bringing God glory. It's an act of worship for us. You extending yourself to other people that are different than you, embracing their differences, that is intended to show them the love of God and lead them to have a greater love for God. And in that, God is glorified. So that's what he's saying in this verse 7. Simply this, that, that, that an authentic worship is going to proceed out of a community that's centered around the gospel. Now, this speaks to us as individuals, number one. It definitely does. It speaks to us as individuals in the sense of, if you think that you can be this transforming Christian through individual worship, kind of living either as an anonymous churchgoer or not even a churchgoer at all, and I just do my own worship thing. I kind of just, it's Jesus and me, and I worship wherever I am. You don't understand the tenor of the passage. 
I mean, there is no way Scripture would advance a believer thinking he's going to be transformed by individual worship alone. Individual worship is a good thing. I encourage us in that. But, but it's in the context of a community built around Christ. That's how authentic worship is birthed. You can't do it by yourself. All the one another's in Scripture. They all are begging for us. Now, then the individual says to me, yeah, but have you been in a church lately? There are some odd people, difficult to get along with, very different than me, constant source of opportunity for conflict. And I say, you're right. It is. It's true. Sometimes this is the most dangerous place to be. But it's in the context of our brokenness, still reaching out to each other, even though it's dangerous, that God's most glorified. Because no other group does that. You know, there's a lot of united groups around here, but they're united around common purposes. And as soon as those purposes go crosswise with each other, boom, they're gone. But we're different. We're to be different. And that's the call here, is that, of course, church is sometimes a a thorny, uncomfortable place. But it's reaching to each other in spite of those differences and awkwardness that actually begins to display his glory most magnificently. So I want you to consider that. I understand it. I just think it's to be done in spite of it and in light of it. So it it has a word for the individual here, but also for us as a church. Now listen, there's a clear word in verse 7 for us as a church. As a church, we are to see that our relationships are to magnify God. So you, I want you to understand that your intersection with the people in this church is an opportunity for worship. It's not just coming here and singing songs and listening to preaching. It's not just going to Bible studies. It's actually engaging one another. That's an opportunity for, for you to worship and to worship in harmony with one another. So what I want you to see is that it is, it is a concern for you to be diligent to seek the harmony of this church, that you and I are resolving conflict. We're reconciling issues. We're pursuing and trying to find a balance with those people perhaps that we're at odds with. I mean, that is important. That's an act of worship. Have you thought about that? That the actual reconciliation of conflict is worship unto God. That we are, in fact, when we don't exercise that willingness to receive others, we're actually saying, well, Jesus can receive the sinners, but we don't. And it it kind of works against the very gospel that we hope will save us. So that's the first thing he's saying, that biblical, that, that biblical worship, authentic worship, is going to come out of a, a believing community. But secondly, and this is importantly, authentic worship has to be built on Christ. And I want to show you this in verses 8 through 12. If you look at 8 with me, he says this. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now, what does this mean? Well, here's what it means, I think. So authentic worship has to take place in a community that is not always spinning perfectly. Authentic worship takes place on Christ. And here's what I mean. You notice that Paul calls Jesus Christ. So he refers to his title, Christ, the Messiah. He's not speaking Jesus, the personal name, but Christ, because he's a Messiah sent from God. And why was he sent? Well, it says to be a servant of the circumcision. What does that mean? Circumcision. Well, it's a term used earlier in Romans for the Jewish people. You know, Jewish people, the covenant of Abraham was sealed by a circumcision. So it says that Jesus was a servant to the circumcision. In other words, Jesus came as a Jew to the Jews. 
He came as a Jew to the Jews to serve them. Now, why? Why did he do that? Well, look what he says. Paul tells us, he says, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. In other words, Jesus came as a Jew to the Jews to show all the Jews, and in fact, all the world, that God is faithful to what he says. He's faithful to these promises that he made to the patriarchs. What is this talking about? Well, God spoke to Abraham, the first patriarch. God spoke to Abraham and said that through you, all the nations will be blessed. So God had a plan of redemption for the world that was given to Abraham as a promise. Through you, through your lineage, there will come one who will save all men and women. All men and women who come to to him by faith. In Genesis 22, this son or this lineage is called a seed. God made this promise to Abraham. He also made it to Isaac and to Jacob that this child would come. He's known as a servant here. And from not just the patriarchs, but also the prophets. We just studied in Isaiah, the prophet, how the servant would come, would be given the spirit, would save people, would take sins upon himself, would deliver us. So here God made these promises. Scattered throughout the Old Testament, God keeps making these promises that I will deliver, I will restore, I will take sins away, I will establish a kingdom, I will bring my glory to this earth and restore all things. Those are the promises of God. Now can't you imagine if you were in the 10th century or the 7th century B.C. or the 6th century B.C.? What are you waiting for? Waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. 5th century, 4th century, 3rd century. When's the promise going to be fulfilled? Well, in Christ, the promise is fulfilled. The promise is answered. Jesus came as a servant to the circumcision to show God's faithful. God kept his word. God made a promise, and he fulfilled the promise. In Jesus, it's the full bloom of God's promise being met that God was going to save the Jewish nation. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 19 and 20, he says that all the promises of God are yes in Christ. Think about it. All of God's promises meet their yes in Jesus Christ, God's faithful. Now, Jesus, though, didn't just come to save the, the Jewish nation. Of course, those in the Jewish nation, he also came to save the Gentiles. Look in verse 9, he says, he says, for I tell you, that, and I'll start in 8, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Do you know what's happening in Christ? Christ comes and saves and serves the Jewish nation, showing the truthfulness of God, but he also comes to declare mercy to the Gentiles that we might glorify God. Now, the Gentiles were always part of God's plan to be saved. Here was the shocker. The shocker was that the salvation of the Gentiles would be through the Jewish people, that it would come through this servant to Israel. That was the shocker. Now, it shouldn't shock us. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Do you see God's plan? God's plan is simply this. He raises up Abraham. And and Abraham, incidentally, was a Gentile, but he is the father of the Jewish nation. So he appoints Abraham, he promises Abraham, through Abraham's seed, so through the Jewish lineage, he brings forth a a Messiah that saves the Gentiles. To, To come full circle. That was God's plan. Through Jesus, 
to reconcile the world to himself. It's incredible that God would do that, to show mercy to the Gentiles. We weren't part of the covenant. We weren't part of the group. We didn't hear the initial law. We weren't given all the promises. We didn't receive any of those things. Folks, most of us here are Gentiles. We were lost. We were forlorn. We were out in the cold, but not forgotten by God. God had planned to show mercy to the Gentiles through Christ. Our mercy, all the mercy that we've received, hangs on Christ and Christ alone. That's what makes us Christians, Christ and him alone. And this is what Paul's argument is as he begins to just dip into the Old Testament. He brings up four different citations here. The first one's from Psalm 18. If you look in verse 9, he says, Therefore, as it's written, this is from Psalm 18, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is a psalm of David. We're counted to picture David in the assembly with Israel, worshiping God, but scattered throughout are the Gentiles. And then the next two references are from Deuteronomy 32 and from Psalm 117. And they kind of take a higher view of God being worshipped by all the nations together. And then the last one's interesting because it's from Isaiah 11. If you remember, we studied that just a couple of months back. In Isaiah 11, the promise was that from the root of Jesse will come a king. Now listen, we studied that Jesse was David's father. And so this root of Jesse, in other words, through the lineage of David, a king would come. And this king would be uh, restoring the fallen kingdom of David. But look at what Paul says. He says this. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. Now, the Davidic king was always to rule Israel, but not this king. This new David, this new Davidic king would be greater than David, much greater. And he wouldn't just rule Israel. He would rule all the nations. That's this Jesus. So when we think about authentic worship, if, if our worship doesn't sit on and founded upon Jesus Christ, it's not worship. And this is really, there's many lessons in these verses for us. I mean, for the non-Christian here, I just want you to see that this is why Christians say that in Christ alone do we worship. It's not arrogance. It's not bullheadedness. It's not ignorance. The Christian is simply trying to be faithful to the Scriptures as we see it. The Scriptures just simply say that Jesus is the one who has come to show God's truthfulness. Jesus isn't one of many prophets from God declaring truth. Jesus is the prophet and the only prophet. Only in Christ do we see the truthfulness of God revealed. Do we see the promises confirmed? Only in Jesus Christ is mercy given to the Gentiles. Remember now, when you talk about the Jew and the Gentile, you're talking about the entire world. Because the Gentile, the word for Gentile is just goyim, it's just nations, all the nations and the Jewish people. So, so that's why we would say that worship, any worship, no matter how deep and feeling and sensitive you are in the worship, no matter how sincere you are, if it isn't rooted in and through Christ, it's not valid worship. It's not valid worship. All the nations are going to bow before Christ as king. He is alone the unique voice Son of God. And there is no worship apart from him. So it's a word for, for the entire world we have here. But it's also a word for this church. You know, how does this, how's the church, how do we look at those verses? Well, number one, it would clearly be a motivation for a racially, economically, socially, 
politically, educationally diverse church. Right? I mean, the same kindness that God extended, that Jesus extended to the Jewish nation, he extended to all the nations. There's no difference. I mean, there are plenty of differences. If, if we could even, if we could have an extra minute and just explain the differences between the Jew and the Gentile, I mean, there are differences of, of dietary differences. Of course, there were theological differences. There were cultural differences. There were educational differences. I, I mean, the, the Jew wouldn't even eat with a Gentile. So disgusting were they. And the Gentile didn't want to eat with a Jew. I mean, they were absolutely at odds with each other at many levels. And yet the same kindness goes to both. It's a call for us as a church that we want to pursue cultural, ethnic, racial, economic, diverse congregation. Boy, that produces a fantastic worship of God as well as it declares great things to the community. So it's a good, solid theological basis why we never you know, and still to today, sadly, there are still divisions along racial lines. We do. And churches tend to be more homogeneous. We even have a, a sitting president who's not of an ethnicity of most Americans, and we still divide along racial lines. The church has no place with that, has very little tolerance with that. But then it also has a word for us as individuals when you look at these verses. I mean, as individuals... And when you think about the mercy that you were given, does it not birth worship? Do you not just want to be grateful and thankful? When you think about the nature of your sin and the shame and the guilt that God would have mercy on you, you who are not party? In fact, Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2. In 1 Peter 2, he says this. He says, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I think a lot of times worship is diminished because we actually think there's some form of entitlement that, that we're born in this nation, this nation is a freely espoused in Christ, and so we just, yeah, we're saved, but what of it kind of thing. And, and we fail to remember, you weren't a people. You hadn't received mercy. But by his sheer grace, you now have been given mercy. I mean, you, you've, been, you've been favored with, no, with nothing inherent to you worthy of the favor. And so out of us, out of me, as I think about this, why did he open my eyes, as we say? Why did he open your eyes? Why did you know many people that heard the same gospel that you did and they didn't turn, they didn't repent, they didn't think great things of God? They just go about their life. They're still trying to pursue happiness and satisfaction and pursuing women or trying to pursue money or satisfaction and business accomplishments. Why you? Why were you given that mercy? It's amazing. It should lead us to worship over his mercy. Or it should lead us to greater trust in God. I mean, think about these promises. All the promises of Scripture, God can't lie. He can't lie because it's in his nature to be a God of truth. He cannot lie. Otherwise, he'd be <clears throat> he would be in absolute opposition to his own nature. You know, we say that you know, a, a dog can't quack. I mean, it's in the nature of a dog to bark. The dog can't do anything but bark. 
We are driven by our nature. God has a nature that's rooted in truth, and he cannot lie. So now we can trust the promises of God. That leads to greater worship. So, so here we have this authentic worship is birthed in community, founded on Christ. But here's what it's to lead to. It's lead to a hope. This is the third point. It's to lead to a hope. Authentic worship should lead to a hope. Look in 13 with me. It's another prayer that Paul prays. He says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I I love this verse. I don't think I fully understand this verse, but I really love this verse. Paul is praying that God, the God of hope, would grant us hope. So it's a prayer. He's asking for a people that are facing despair and doubt. Perhaps you're facing anxiety. You've got bitterness. You've got anger. You're not certain about the future ahead of you. And he's saying, may the God of hope, may he fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that through the power of the Spirit, you might abound in hope. What what do we do here? Do we just pray? Do we just say, God, grant us hope? Well, yeah, we do pray, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But but notice what he says. I want you to look at the particular words. And, And this is one of those verses you can fly right over, and you think you get it, and you miss a key ingredient to understanding this verse. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So you're going to have all joy and all peace as you believe. In other words, you have a role. You have a part. There's a synergistic work here going on. It's not just seeking God to grant us. We're not just praying and waiting for hope and peace and joy, but we're engaged in the process, in believing. You have to believe. What do we believe? What are we called to believe in? Is it just the outcome's going to be what I want? Do I just have to kind of name it and claim it? Is that what you're saying here? No. I'm saying that we have to believe in Jesus. Look in verse 12. In him will the Gentiles hope. In other words, believing in Jesus is more than that one-step process that many of us go through when we believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and then we get about with life and trying to live according to the Ten Commandments. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about us being a people who live by faith. So in believing, all joy and peace come to us. So joy and peace will be yours. The experience of worship is yours in believing. So, So there's that call for us to believe. What do I mean by this? Well, For example, if you're facing despair over your brokenness, your sin, your shame, you look back at your life, it's a train wreck, and you you have trouble getting beyond it, and it affects your ability to worship God. Well, in believing means that I'm going to believe that Jesus did, in fact, bear my sins. He, in fact, bore the wrath of God. He, in fact, bore the punishment of God. This is the gospel. He bore those things so that I might be forgiven. I might be accepted by God. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then you walk away from the thoughts of your absolute failure in sin and shame and guilt. You walk away from it. And joy and peace can be yours as you believe that, no, he's the one that came from God to reconcile me to God. That in exercising belief toward that end, joy and peace is yours. Or perhaps you doubt whether you're accepted by God. You doubt whether... God can really love you. You say, well, God can love so-and-so and so-and-so because they're so spiritual and so holy. God could never love me. Well, joy and peace can be yours in believing. In believing what? In believing that Jesus Christ, through his work, has brought you to the Father, adopted as a son or daughter. Now listen, it's in the word. So do you believe it or do you believe the thoughts in your mind? So many times we believe what we say to ourselves more than we believe what God says to us. 
And so put the two thoughts together. Who will you believe? Are you going to believe yourself? Or are you going to believe God? I'd go with God every time. I would go with him every time. Or perhaps you're facing a temptation, and you feel that you're going to fall before the temptation. And, and you're nervous, and you're in fear. Well, joy and peace can be yours in believing that he will not bring you before a temptation through which he doesn't lead you and escape. That, the, that, that he's not going to bring you in believing. You have to believe that, that God would never do that to his children. And joy and peace come. Or if you're facing death, even death. How can joy and peace be yours? Well, in believing, Jesus has conquered death. Or perhaps you're in fear over the security of this country. You've had three school shootings in three days. And people are concerned. They're nervous. They're scared. How can we have joy and peace in that situation? Well, in believing that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So, folks, it's really the joy that I'm talking about in worship, the experience in worship, this joy and peace and hope, it comes in believing. So you have a role. You're not passive in this event. You're active. But it's more than that. Notice what he says. He says in 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. It is clearly of God that we appeal. It's not you believing, moving the levers and turning the dials. It does involve your participation through faith. But at the end of the day, God, you've got to give us hope. God, you have to furnish us with grace even to believe. I pray to believe. Frankly, sometimes I can be wavering in belief, and I ask God, God, grant me faith. Grant me grace to believe that what you say is true. Sometimes I struggle with doubting. And so we have to ask for grace, God. And the Spirit of God is the, is the means through which God alivens and quickens faith in us. So if you, if you struggle with believing, if you say, well, that sounds all good, Tom, I understand you, but I just have trouble believing, then ask the Spirit of God to grant you greater grace to believe. The Spirit has to open our eyes. We didn't believe at first. He gave us faith to believe. Faith is a gift, it says in Ephesians 2. And so ask the Spirit of God. So, so as a community of faith here, we look at authentic worship as coming out of the community. You will experience God's transforming grace in greatest measure together in this community, centered around the gospel. Your worship will be deepest when it's focused most on Christ. So when you come on Sunday morning, foremost in your mind is, I want to give thanks to Jesus Christ who has saved me by his mercy and grace. And I want to come to him for greater grace, to, to be transformed from glory to glory. And then thirdly, this type of authentic worship doesn't necessarily produce the hair standing on your ends. It doesn't necessarily produce feelings of, wow. I mean, I, I pray that happens sometimes. I mean, that, 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 that can be deceptive. I remember driving back from a meeting once. I had this Fenty at Starbucks. It was before Solo was open. And... Uh, and I had this huge, it was my second extra-large coffee, and I heard, um, I heard um, a mighty fortress is our God. And I thought for a minute, I was going up. I thought, this is, I felt so, I felt so amazingly close to God. And then I looked down, and I was just was shaking. And I realized, I think it's the coffee. I think the coffee did it. And um, I mean, I almost had to pull over. I was really, really moved. So... So the feelings, the authentic worship, doesn't necessarily produce those. It produces peace and joy in the midst of the conflict. It produces hope 
when all hope from an, from an earthly perspective is gone. It produces a joy that even things are going sideways in my life right now, I will believe that God, who is sovereign over all things, not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will, I'm going to believe that my Father, who has adopted me through the mercy of the Son, I'm going to believe that he's going to lead me to where I need to be, even if it's not initially where I want to go. And, and, and that's the joy. That's the authentic emotions and feelings that we want to have come out of worship, a joy, a peace, and a hope. So let's take a minute now, and, and I'm going to open us in prayer. David's going to close us. But in these, intervie- in these uh, intervening moments, I, I would invite you to pray. And because we're together as a church, corporately, let's pray, thinking about one another. So what do we need here? We need hope. We need the filling of the Spirit. What do we want? We want more of God's joy and satisfaction. We want more peace and and joy in believing. So let's pray. And those of you who pray, pray loud, pray brief so others can pray. But pray in concert with what we all need as kind of driven by this text. I'll begin and then you can pray and then David will close us in a moment. Father, would you give us grace now to believe Give us grace to believe that these words, that all the promises, all all the promises you've made were yes in Christ. Father, give us the grace to believe that you can be trusted in everything. 